The Serial Entrepreneur, brought to you by Startups Magazine. A podcast bringing you leading businesses and founders who have a story to tell and explain some of their biggest challenges. Try not to be too hard on yourself. Like, I've met so many founders who are like, you know, I should have done this, and then the pandemic happened, and I didn't do this. And, and you spend so much time, like, second-guessing yourself when really mistakes will happen. Like, we're human. It really does improve over time, and I think sometimes when you're starting out, you kind of almost expect yourself to have, you know, super high standards from the start. You know, you want to do your best at the start, absolutely, but you're never going to be perfect. Plus, share their biggest secret, their favourite breakfast cereals. My favourite cereal is an Australian cereal called Nutrigrain. Rice Krispies. It's pretty boring. Weetabix. I have a clear winner. It is uh, Cocoa Pops. Welcome back to the Serial Entrepreneur Podcast, hosted by Startups Magazine. I am your host, Anton Brissinger, and joining me today is Lisa Marie Carter, who is the founder of Discussion Box, a virtual platform that delivers information and engaging online events on the latest in IT, tech, and digitalization. Welcome, Lisa. How are you today? Hi. Hello, Anton. I'm well, thank you. So as the title suggests, the podcast is called The Serial Entrepreneur, and a kind of tradition we have on here is that we ask the guest, what is your favorite breakfast cereal and why? My favorite breakfast cereal is quite boring, actually. It's cornflakes. I try to avoid it now because for me to really enjoy it, I have to put about six tablespoons of sugar on it to really sweeten it, but it's just nice, and I like it with warm milk. So yeah, I'm a warm milk cornflakes fan. Warm milk? I've never heard that before. Why? Have you always been a warm milk person or is that just something that you developed over the years? Just from a child, I've always like had warm milk with my cornflakes. I really don't like cold breakfast. So, so yeah, I guess that's the reason. Interesting. I've never met anyone who has warm milk. That is very, even on like the ads growing up, like all the, in the US we have so many cereal ads. It was always like, don't forget to add the cold milk, ice cold milk. So you are definitely the first one I've ever met who has warm milk with their cereal. Warm milk and really soggy cornflakes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you prefer to have it in the morning or at night? Say, I, I read a thing the other day which I thought was quite funny. It said, everybody knows breakfast cereal is always better at night. Would you agree? Definitely better at night. Definitely a nice late night snack. Yeah, get something real quick to sit there, a big bowl. Yeah, a nighttime snack. But of course, morning too. It feels like you're kind of breaking the law a little bit, like disrupting the matrix. Like, yeah, look at me. I'm having cereal at night. It makes it so much more rebellious. Especially with warm milk. (laughs) Definitely breaking the matrix. Yeah, exactly. Warm milk late at night. I mean, you are pushing all the envelopes in this one. So I wanted to ask, tell us about Discussion Box and how that idea came to fruition. Why you think an idea like that was necessary and why you thought people would respond to it, which they obviously have been. Yeah, sure thing. So Discussion Box came about from ideas that I guess I've been playing with for years, being that I've been in the event space for at least 10 years now and have always faced certain pain points that I wanted to erase. So traditionally, I've hosted in-person events that have focused on various areas of technology and, you know, with in-person events comes the obvious attrition, people drop out last minute, also, you've got the, the kind of 
limitations with access depending on where your attendees are or your your speakers are so things like that as a small business really made events always quite difficult to kind of create a successful event on a global scale or to reach like a super wide audience and I wanted to erase that of course as you know I'm trying to advance in my career and build a successful business so for me being able to do things virtually and with my experience on working with video platforms it would really just give access to a wider audience base wider speaker pool and it would also make things a lot more cost effective so when i had the idea was at the start of 2018 back then there was you know it was pre covid so we wasn't like suffering zoom fatigue in fact zoom zoom wasn't even a household name and i decided i'm going to create a virtual platform i checked out all the what are now household names like zoom and other platforms but being a jewelry designer as well i'm really all about the aesthetics and things looking the way i want them to look but coupled with my experience in the industry i also knew exactly how it needed to function to serve my client base so i didn't find anything that i felt would really serve my needs in the way i wanted so i decided to build my own so i found the development team created what is now discussion box and then launched it in 2019 at the end of 2019 fast forward a couple of months we're in a pandemic 2020 and i always knew there'd be a need for virtual simply just if you think of the conveniences of it but then landed in a pandemic it just meant that the world was forced to look at digital alternatives to things like in person events so it was just a breakthrough for me and i guess you could say covid served me in that everyone became familiar with even if by force you know having online meetings online events which really kind of conditioned everyone's minds for being more open to a platform like discussion box i was going to say I, i feel like obviously covid was so detrimental for many people but i feel like when it comes to stuff like this it could have probably actually helped you because then people were a desperate for kind of you know keeping this ball rolling so to speak but also having it virtually yeah 100% because everyone was looking for business continuity in person events were no longer a thing because of course of social distancing etc and businesses still had to meet with prospects still had to collaborate and as much as the way you know we work changed in terms of teams became remote teams the way we also did business changed and the way we engaged with our clients changed so virtual platforms were just a want but they were a need at that point there was no other option which as i said was really good for discussion box because it meant that yeah business just exploded so what are some of the first steps you took i mean because obviously had you worked with us before I mean, you mentioned you'd been working in jewelry and stuff was that kind of a did you stop jewelry and focus entirely on this or what was the kind of what was the game plan yeah so jewelry was something i kind of fell into as a passion project and then it picked up momentum when certain stylists kind of discovered my brand on social media and then from there you know it was on runway celebrity to wear in it and it kind of grew organically and it served my like other creative passion so it's all it, it's still there i kind of call it an expensive hobby it's not my main thing but it's a good creative outlet for me but in terms of events i've worked in like tech and b2b since i was just 20 
And so, yeah, since I was really young and have a lot of experience in tech and a lot of experience in events, but around 2010, I met a guy called Ian Connell, who was the founder of a startup called Musion. And I met him at an event which was hosted on the technology at the time called Telepresence. So it's a big video technology. It was like a more advanced version of video conferencing. And I used that technology to host a hybrid event where some of my participants were all over the US and then the other participants were in the UK, but they they joined and collaborated on telepresence. And I met this guy there, Ian Connell, and I learned a lot about video just from his startup Musion. And what he had created, you probably remember, especially being from Cali Anton, you probably know the festival Coachella. I've been many times. I haven't been, so I have to go, but it was his technology that um, brought the 3D hologram of Tupac to the stage at Coachella. I don't know if you saw or remember that. I I didn't see it in person, but I did see, I mean, growing up in California, Tupac's is basically like our, I don't know, our number one mascot. So yeah, I definitely watched that online. That was incredible. It was amazing. And yeah, Ian was the guy who who created Musion, this technology, which then went on to bring the likes of Avatars. They used it for Pixar. And I remember he came to one of my events. He was an amazing guy. He just had this startup. This is before the Tupac Coachella event. And he literally pitched me on how great the technology was and the things it could do. And from then, he kind of planted an additional seed in terms of the benefits of using video. So I always, you know, had this kind of passion for using video. And as a mother, I've always kind of enjoyed the conveniences of being able to do things without having to physically be there, because it means I'm not having to split myself or spread myself too thinly. So yeah, so it's been a long time coming, really. And having hosted many B2B events in the past, the platform was built from a place of experience rather than some of the other platforms that popped up during COVID, which were kind of like almost to take advantage of, not in a negative way, but to really just take advantage of, you know, monetize the opportunity that COVID presented. That is, yeah, that's a real wild story. And so I guess I imagine, because I'm always so fascinated when people kind of have because, I mean, jewelry and discussion box, I would say, are quite different, but they still come from a place of design and creativity, so to speak. Do you think your background in jewelry has helped you kind of create at least the aesthetic side of discussion box? Yeah, I think it's definitely fueled my obsession for the perfection on the aesthetic side. And so tell me more about how you kind of got... I guess at least after he did the whole Tupac thing and stuff, what have you guys been continuing to collaborate now since since your first kind of initial meeting? We haven't, but we discussed it at the start of last year because when I rolled out the first phase of Discussion Box, it was really just built to serve my existing tech clients. But, you know, after having really great feedback about the, the platform and just really thinking of how I could utilize it to serve other areas that I'm more passionate about, I started working on the SaaS version of Discussion Box, which is a subscription-based model, which is going to be launching in the next few months with an app. And the purpose of the SaaS was really to replicate what I was doing in my own kind of B2B space and world with my existing clients, but on a much larger scale whereby anyone can come along and host a virtual event using the Discussion Box technology on a subscription basis. Um, So Ian and I have discussed collaborating there and he just, you know, a good source of information and he just really knows his thing when it comes to 
the world of video and and, and the trends and, and just basically where it's moving. And so how did you, because obviously I feel like so many people, when they start something new, there's always so much precariousness going into it. How are you so, obviously, aside from the obvious thing with COVID, but how are you so confident, I guess, that this would be something that people would take to? I think my taste for hosting hybrid events in the past and being able to bring speakers from all over the US to a UK event based on using telepresence already gave me an idea of just how well received it would be. And and yeah, just my just my experience in the industry and seeing how it was shaping up and the need for, you know, well, all event hosts face the same challenges. And I knew it was going to be an ongoing challenge and a, a challenge that would only worsen as the event space becomes more saturated because you can probably fill your diary from here to the middle of next year with events based on how many events in, in just a tech space there are. So with that becoming more and more saturated, I know people's diaries are becoming more and more full. And then they're becoming more particular about which events they attend because they are time intensive. So in order to create more conveniences, I always knew virtual events would be a hit. I just didn't realize how ready the world would be for them maybe on more of a consumer level in terms of what COVID presented and how much it kind of prepared people for using that platform. Although, you know, everyone right now is excited to return to in-person events and they're doing so as much as they possibly can because, you know, there's nothing that can replace real human physical connection. However, I think once we get used to that as an option, naturally people are going to go back to things that serve them more conveniently. Yeah, I feel like because of COVID, it's, it's, we've seen the highest of the highs now in both areas. And so during COVID, I was like, oh my God, it's so convenient with kind of Zoom and all these things. But then people get tired of it and now everyone wants it to be in person. And I feel like slowly the, leving, the playing field will kind of level out and it'll be, I would imagine, probably 50-50 on both sides. Yeah, I agree. And you have to think as well, you know, you think of the major cities, New York, you think of London, you think of where, if it's fashion, you think of where all the fashion weeks happen. They're always in these major cities, whether that be Paris, London, New York, like I mentioned. For people who live outside of those cities, for people who don't have the time, the support or the finances to travel, they're missing out on really great content. They don't have that access. So virtual and digital alternatives are always going to be, you know, of benefit to them and really serve them. Yeah, I've noticed even just me with myself in the beginning working from home, I thought, oh, wow, this is great. You know what I mean? I can get so much more work than I can chill. And now I feel like working from home is, has almost become like a, a sort of a prison to some degree. So when, when I end work for the day, I'm like, oh, God, I'm still stuck in my home. You know what I mean? But I think also with these events or in kind of just working virtually, I think the people who are a bit more outgoing they're really de- in desperate need to kind of get out there in the open, whereas like the people that might be a bit more introverted probably prefer it. And I think would probably always prefer to be working from home and being the, in the virtual r- world as opposed to the real world. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, it, it seems all fun and games when you think of the opportunity to work from home all the time. And then you have so many workforces really wanting to drive that they want to be home, but For example, at Discussion Box, we have a hybrid model where we spend some days working from home and some days in the office. And then I have staff that are 100% remote. 
And I often hear the remote staff say, this is just, it just gets boring. You know, they might go to a coffee shop or a shared working space just to feel that presence of other people. So it seems like a luxury until, yeah, you've kind of overfed yourself on it and you're then starved of real human connection. I, I interviewed someone on the podcast, I think a few months ago, and they said at peak COVID, when basically, you know, you were, you were forced to work from, there was no choice just to get kind of in the rhythm of the feeling of some sort of, so you weren't in this kind of prison at home, they would put on clothes, basically shower, get, do their routine, take a walk kind of around the neighborhood, buy a cup of coffee and then go home to get working just to kind of get the juices flowing a little bit. But I was like, honestly, that's a good alternative if you can't do anything else, you know? Yeah, it still feels like you have some kind of structure to your day rather than like being in your PJs, rolling out of bed, opening your laptop and then, you know, just staying in the same spot all day. I've noticed even with movies, because again, Netflix, I'm I'm a big movie fanatic and I was so scared that COVID because you read so much stuff like, you know, movie theaters are going under, people aren't going to movie theaters anymore. Last night I was at a concert, completely sold out from a relatively, you know, it's one thing it is Taylor Swift, but it's a pretty relatively unknown punk band from Sweden, completely sold out in London. So it was giving me kind of hope. I was like, okay, people want to be outside again. They want to have this human connection. And then I want to go to the movies this week. And every time I try to buy tickets for this one film, it was completely sold out. So I was like, okay, I feel like people are kind of like, you know, man. And I think also with these, even with events as well, if you have a speaker that you find inspiring, getting to hear that person speak in front of everyone, you're kind of sharing that experience with everyone else. They make you laugh. You all laugh together. If you're finding out about new information, you're, you're sharing that information with everyone around you. And I think those kind of events are pretty hard to kind of beat out. If, if it's something good, if it's really worthwhile, you know, and I've seen, I am, um, my friend works in fashion and they had a kind of virtual catwalk during peak COVID and it was definitely cool to see, but I think when you're there and it kind of, but I think it, it and like, like we said before, I think it'll be good to have the option for it to be 50, 50 as, as we move kind of hopefully towards the final legs of COVID. Yeah, I agree. The things like fashion, it's so important to be able to be more tactile and, you know, that experience in person, I've never built, you know, I was never driven to build a platform to replace or replicate that in-person experience. I know tech can do a lot of things. When you think of VR, when you think of AI, you just think of the way things like Web3 are progressing, but you can even make your platform, as I have done with Discussion Box, as immersive as possible, but it won't replicate it. But it will allow you to be involved in experiences you might otherwise have had to have missed out on because it's not in that city or it, it saves the you know costs for businesses, saves travel. So from, an, from a sustainable point of view and the environment, it's a great option. And there's just so many benefits to virtual that people will continue to want to take advantage of. What do you think about the future of like the metaverse and all that stuff? What do you think about how it's going to be with the virtual reality world. I think I've read so much because I'm very fascinated by the kind of the human psychology of it. And I feel like many people will probably be quite, you know, apprehensive towards the whole thing. But I think many people after COVID in these kind of virtual worlds can almost like, you know, create a different identity. And then it's like, why would you want to enter the real world if this virtual version of you is much cooler, you know? Yeah, I, I I have a curiosity about it. 
I think is really interesting. It's definitely fascinating and the options that it brings are just limitless. But again, I think we need to be really careful about where that type of technology takes us because even if you think about your childhood, if you were like an 80s or a 90s baby and just how rich that was in real experiences because we weren't distracted by technology. You know, we want to be careful not to lose that and immerse ourselves too much in the digital world because I think even when you consider your mental health and you just consider getting enough vitamin D and all these things, you know, you could lose a sense of reality if, if, if you overindulge on it. No, I think the biggest thing, I, I saw a meme a few months ago, so that was so funny. It said the way you flexed on someone, like if you got a new outfit, like in elementary school back in the day, was you would go up to the pencil sharpener and you'd sharpen your pencil and the whole classroom looks at you if you're wearing new clothes. But so you only got this kind of affirmation or, I guess, bullying, if you will, from, you know, 10 to 20 kids in a classroom. That's so if you're getting bullied, it's still obviously not fun, but it's not the entire universe where I notice now my dad has new kids and his daughter is 11 and she has Instagram, which I'm very much against. But I think my dad also, he's in his old age now. So he's like, oh, I don't care. He just doesn't care anymore. But if she gets, you know, 20, 30, 100 likes, I'm like, dude, 100 likes or 11. You don't need that many likes. Yeah, it can create a real false sense of reality, you know, and you can just become really obsessive with it. So for me, especially as a mother, like you said, your sister is 11 and she has Instagram. You know, you have to be really careful because we didn't have these things at 11 and it's just a whole different world. So as a, as a mother, I'm really careful about how much... I allow my children to indulge in it because it can be potentially quite scary. I remember I had, was MySpace, was MySpace big in England? Yeah, I, do you know what? I lived in New York during the MySpace era. So it wasn't as big in the UK as it was in the US. It was, yeah, we they, yeah we had it in the UK for sure. But in the US is where it really blew up. Yeah, I, I remember I had MySpace in probably middle school. So from like... 13 to like 15 maybe and then Facebook kind of took over so we all switched to Facebook but I remember even MySpace my dad which is you know a good parenting he would sit on the computer with me every night to make sure that like you know I wasn't getting spammed by some creepy online predators or something and he'd be like who's that person I'm like that's my friend Ryan like you know him he was over at the house yesterday but I feel like now, since it's on the phones, it's so hard to regulate. Because we also, we have like a family computer. I don't have a computer in my room. So if I was on MySpace, my dad knew where I was doing and he could see me because I was in the computer room with one of those like big clunky desktops. But now kids have iPhones. So you're so, you know, in secrecy all the time. You can do certain things unless the parents kind of install those app blocking devices and stuff. But yeah, it's very frightening. Yeah, and difficult to moderate. So yeah, you kind of, I kind of have like device timeout in my house. But yeah, there's so many ways that you have to kind of keep an eye and check on things to make sure they don't end up on some wild, random site that's <laughs> not for under 18 eyes. I was going to ask, because now we did, we did speak about Tupac, and obviously coming from LA, he's, I can't really think of anyone, maybe like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who are more like quintessential, like pride of LA, so to speak. How important do you think, because you, how old are your kids? So I have really big age gaps. I had my first son when I was 18. He's now 24. And, uh, you know, I decided I had no more children at the time. So it, it took a good 11 years before I had any more. So, yeah, so my eldest is 24. 
And then I have a 13-year-old son, and my youngest is my daughter. She's four, four and a half, soon to be five. Oh, wow, big age differences. That's right. So they're totally basic. Yeah, you're... Because I'm born 94, so that means he was born 98? Yeah, that's right. So there's Tevam, yeah, so 90s kid, the noughties kid, and then a kind of more, much more recent one. Yeah. I was going to ask, though, so we spoke about Tupac. What do you see kind of for kids nowadays with certain role models and stuff? Have you noticed a kind of – because, I mean, now maybe I'm just being a grumpy old man, but when I see Annika, who she kind of – that's my half-sister, and her generation, who they kind of aspire to, it's like some YouTuber who, oh, let's see how many Skittles I can eat in 20 seconds, whereas me and my friends were, you know, looking up to – Nobody, you know, guys like Tupac, guys like people, you know, genuine poets and stuff like that. Have you noticed that as a parent as well? Have you noticed a kind of a different in idols and stuff that kids look up to nowadays? Yeah, I mean, I would just to like caveat that I'm a very big Tupac fan. So that was what I listened to growing up. And I'll have to turn the volume down when I heard my mom like approaching the top of the stairs because, you know, his music contains a lot of profanity. That was me too. My my mom bought me the edited CD when I was a kid. She bought me All Eyes on Me, the edited version. But he still said the B word and he said a few other words in it. He just didn't say the F word. And my mom was like, what? This isn't edited. And I was like, they edit some of the stuff. I self-proclaimed number one Tupac fan. So um, we can maybe have a bit of a rap battle one day. But other than that, I mean, times have changed. I think I think the only thing that's changed in music is it's a lot more accessible because you have all these streaming platforms, you have things like YouTube, but then you have to go out and physically buy a CD or a cassette, you know? Uh, so other than that, you'd be hearing it on the radio and the radio edits obviously toned down. So I just think it's a lot more accessible. There's a lot more people making music now. So, you know, it's not as, I don't know, governed. It's just, there's, there's a lot of cultures and subcultures in music. I, I think from a parent's point of view, you just, yeah, you just have to kind of monitor it as best as you can. But it's really difficult with all these streaming platforms. You really don't always know what's going on outside of your home in terms of what your child might be listening to. But yeah, it, it's, it's really not changed that much. I just think there's more of it. My elder son and I used to both listen to NERD together. <laughs> so, you know, but then if I was to play that to my my 13-year-old, he'd probably be like, what, what's this? <laughs> I don't think he'd have any interest in it whatsoever. And then my four-year-old, she's really not into much music at all other than, you know, the soundtracks and theme tunes that come along with things like Trolls, a movie or Sonic or, you know, something like that. But yeah, it, it's just a, the change of the times, really. What do you think about like mumble rap and stuff like that? Because I know, I don't know if you've seen the interview, but there's a video when Snoop Dogg is just going off. He's like, I hate it. This is so bad. They're not rapping. What do you think about it? Well, I hear it all because that's a really interesting thing. And I think that's probably what keeps me cool is having such a diverse age range of children in my home. I just think, you know, you hear the more OG rappers talk about their detest for mumble rap, but just have to be more open and allow the youth to do what they're doing it's you know might not be what we listened to in the 90s but times change and I think it's really important to embrace these changes especially when you work in an area like tech otherwise you really get left behind so I have a real open mind to it 
I think it's a good, a very good attitude to have. I think there's so many, I've listened to so many podcasts of like, you know, kind of the older rapper generation guys that I grew up listening to and whose opinion I really admire and respect. And very few of them are remotely kind of inviting to this new mumble rapper. And I guess I get it to some degree, but it's with all stuff, music and tech and everything changes so, so much. I, I, there's a great quote with Henry Ford. He said, if I would have asked the people what they want, they would have said faster horses, but instead I built them cars. And I think that says so much about this kind of constant evolution of everything. And it's, I'll I'll admit, like I I do listen to some mumble rap, but even though I I feel almost like a traitor a little bit, like I I think KRS-One had a long video. He's like, this isn't music. And I love KRS-One. So I was listening to this new mumble rap and then I was like, oh God. But, you know, you it, you just got to be open to everything, I suppose. And appreciate it, you know. We're, just, we're in the, the the era of, like, creativity. And so, and it's, we're so we get to enjoy it in, in its richness and its fullness. And it just looks different from every angle. And I think I, I, I don't really like to critique things like that because to someone else, that's their form of art. I think it's a very good note to end it on. And I was going to ask, Lisa, anything else you want to say to our listeners? Oh, just thank you for taking the time to listen to this interview. Make sure you check out Discussion Box. I'm hoping for it to be the household name for virtual events. So, uh, yeah, so watch this space and there's plenty more to come. Thank you for talking to me today, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. The Serial Entrepreneur, brought to you by Startups Magazine. A podcast bringing you leading businesses and founders who have a story to tell and explain some of their biggest challenges. Try not to be too hard on yourself. Like, I've met so many founders who are like, you know, I should have done this, and then the pandemic happened, and I didn't do this. And, and you spend so much time, like, second-guessing yourself when really mistakes will happen. Like, we're human. It really does improve over time, and I think sometimes when you're starting out, you kind of almost expect yourself to have, you know, super high standards from the start. You know, you want to do your best at the start, absolutely, but you're never going to be perfect. Plus, share their biggest secret, their favourite breakfast cereals. My favourite cereal is an Australian cereal called Nutrigrain. Rice Krispies. It's pretty boring. Weetabix. I have a clear winner. It is uh, Cocoa Pops.